You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast, your number one source for hunting and shooting in the great outdoors. Sit back and relax as we interview some of the most experienced outdoorsmen in the industry today. You will learn valuable tips and tricks that you can use on your next hunting trip into the field to make you a more successful hunter. Now here's your host, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Selms, and this is episode five, Hunting Crows with Bob Aronson. So you might ask, who is Bob Aronson? Bob Aronson started hunting crows in June of 1959 with his father, Leo Aronson. Bob was 11 and a half years old when he shot his first crow, and Bob has come from a family of hunters, and his dad and his uncles were all keen hunters. Bob has been hunting crows for over 52 years and has kept a journal of all his hunts. In the past 37 years, Bob has shot 139,390 crows. That's right, 139,390 crows from October 1974 to February 2011. Bob served in two tours to Vietnam from 1968 to 1970 in the US Navy. Bob was allowed to keep his own shotguns aboard the ship because he was on the Navy skeet team and he represented the team every time he pulled into port. Bob got married on March 3rd, 1974 and left for Kansas the following day. He loaded up his new bride and moved from New York to Kansas because guess what? That's where the crows were. Before I get into my interview with Bob Aronson again, I would like to remind you guys we are on Facebook, you know, so you can head on to the Facebook page. That's where all the current and uh, information is about future guests we're going to have on the show. Uh, you can also uh, submit questions that we ask to our future guests. So jump on the page. You can also post up photos and videos. Uh, it's definitely a great way to get involved. You can also subscribe to us on our Twitter account at AH Podcast. And we are also on iTunes. You can jump on iTunes. Uh, subscribe to our automatic feeds and every time a new episode becomes available you can automatically download it Uh, if you guys haven't been on itunes i'd love you guys to go on there and click on the five stars leave us a review Uh, that'll get us more exposure for us uh, australian hunters shooters and fishers Uh, so without further ado uh, let's get into my interview with bob aronson hi this is robert borsak from the shooters and fishers party And you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Bob Aronson, welcome to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for coming on, sir. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Jason. It's a long way between Hutchinson, Kansas and Australia. A long, long way. certainly is. So... Uh, Bob, tell us how you actually got into uh, uh, hunting. You know, was it a family tradition, or was it your father who got you into it? Well, it was a family tradition. My uh, uh, my father, uh, he hunted he uh, hunted both birds and he hunted big game both, and um, he got me into uh, hunting the crows in 1959. I shot my uh, first crow flying when I was 11. And a- 11 and a half years old, you know, I just got more and more engrossed in the sport. Now, you know, when you're an 11 and a half year old kid, one thing that I remember in particular when I was first starting out, it's like anything that you do uh, that is athletic, where you have eye to hand coordination. You just don't learn certain things on an odd afternoon. It takes years to get good at something. So I used to get so frustrated at myself where 
my dad would always let me shoot first, and I'd just be shooting holes in the sky, and nothing would be dropping, you know, and he'd shoot after me, and my dad was a very fine wing shot. And I remember getting depressed one day. I was just about ready to give up wing shooting. And my dad sat me down, and he said, look, he says, you're 11 and a half years old. He says, uh, there's no possible way, he says, you can compete with me when I've been doing it my whole life. Give yourself a break. You're too darn hard on yourself. And it was just through his nurturing and everything. My dad was a very, very good uh, teacher in regard to wing shooting and stuff like that, and he had a good head on his shoulders, and uh, uh, I miss him greatly. He's been gone since uh, 1986 now. You know, so you said you were 11 and a half when you first started hunting crows. So how many years so far have you been hunting crows for now? Um, uh, a total of uh, 52 years now, but uh, I, I started hunting them seriously when I was in my early 20s. That would have been in the uh, late uh, 1960s. Okay. And, um, and then when... Um, uh, when I started to uh, venture out outside the state of New York, I started hunting crows in Massachusetts, and I started hunting crows in Connecticut and, and uh, upper New York State. And uh, my dad and I used to go into Quebec to hunt crows back in the 60s because my father uh, could speak French fluently. And a lot of the um, uh, people in Quebec, they could speak English, but they didn't. But since my father was fluent in French, there's a lot of farm that we used to get on and hunt crows up there in Quebec. And, um, and then I, I came to Kansas for the first time in 1968. And I was on leave from the uh, U.S. Navy at the time. And when I saw all the crows here, I just said to myself, man, this is something. So I came out, you know, the next couple of years while I was still in the Navy. And, uh, and then I went to work for a construction company in Connecticut, and I still kept coming out here. And when I met my uh, wife-to-be in uh, Long Island, New York, I happened to say to her, I said, listen, I don't want to live in New York my whole life. I want to be able to, you know, move to Kansas. And Gail, uh, she had she had a great personality. Gail was the type of personality type that she could say something to you that might rub you wrong, but the way she said it, there's no way that you could get mad at her. To give you an example, I said to her, you're going to be leaving your friends and family if you follow me to Kansas. And she said, if you're going to be making a living, she says, I'll follow you anywhere you want to go. And I said to her, well, that was awful easy. And she says, well, she said, the reason why is because I met your side of the family. <laughs> That's a true story, too. <laughs> That's a good story, yeah. 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 So say, all right, Bob, so say if a hunter, you know, he wants to go out and, you know, he wants to hunt crows, you know, where would, you know, the, where would the hunter start looking? You know, would he look in open fields? You know, would he look for, you know, cornfields? Or where do the crows tend to, tend to frequent in uh, finding their food sources? Well, primarily, what a what a fellow wants to do if he wants to hunt crows is he has to seek out the agricultural areas. Um, if you live in a province or a county that doesn't have any agricultural areas, then you're going to have to go outside your county to find them. Now, that's not to say that you still wouldn't have some crows in areas that don't have any agriculture. The only thing is you're going to have a lot more crows where they raise row crops, such as corn, uh, such as soybeans, uh, stuff of that nature, peanuts, for instance, um, any kind of uh, melons or anything crows like real well. Uh, other type of nuts, uh, you know, they like pecans also. Um, 
and that is where you're going to find the crows. You have to get into the agricultural areas. All right. So, what's the best way, you know, to scout crows? If you're going to find, you know, find out where they're roosting, how how does a hunter try and go about that? Well, the uh, the best thing that you can do is is uh, you get out in your uh, vehicle, and about an hour before sundown, you start driving, and uh, the first uh, decent-sized flock of crows that you pick up, if you see them headed in a in a in any particular direction, okay, follow them, and they will lead you to other crows. And watch and see what direction follow in whatever direction they're going in. Follow them, and what's going to happen is, if you're lucky enough, they'll lead you to where they're roosting. Now, I want to emphasize that if you do find a crow roost. Um, not to shoot inside it, because if you do, you're literally ruining what you have found. Now, uh, the best thing to possibly do is, is if you do find a crow roost like that, observe the flyways that are going to that roost in the afternoon hours. And what happens is, say, for instance, if you were going to be real hoggish, and very, very short-sighted, and you park yourself right in the middle of the roost, and you get yourself one shoot, and that's it. Uh, you know, uh, one of two things is going to happen if you shoot right in a roost like this. Uh, after you do that, the crows are going to stay out later and later, where they're not going to come in until it's almost pitch black. So you're far better off shooting the flyways going into the roost, where you can back off away from the roost, and the roost is used as a sanctuary where uh, you don't bother them in there. And when you shoot the different flyways coming into the roost, you're not dealing with as many birds, so you don't wise as many up. Now, some people will say to me, well, you know, if you're not dealing with as many birds, then you're not going to be able to shoot as many. And that's not true at all, because if you have you know, birds coming in two or three or five at a time, you can only shoot so many of them. Uh, whereas if you're parked in the center of a roost, every time you fire the gun in the air, you're scaring hundreds of them with every shot you fire in the air. So um, uh, to give you another example of, uh, of what I would do is once you locate a roost, for instance, say there's only one flyway, say if it's a not a very big crow roost, you want to be very careful not to overshoot it because crows are smart. They're one of the most intelligent birds in the world. They're ranked fourth in the entire world as far as intelligence goes. Uh, ducks and geese and upland game birds, they don't even get on the list for the top 10 smartest birds in the world. The only birds that are smarter than crows are like your minor birds and your parrots that live to be over 100 years old. But uh, crows are ranked fourth in intelligence. But getting back to if there's only one flyway leading to a crow roost, shoot it sparingly. Once a week, every uh, once a week to 10 days is fine where you won't spook them too badly. If you have more than one flyway going in, if, if you're lucky enough to have a large enough crow roost where, say, you have uh, flights coming in from different points on the compass, from the north, from the northwest, from the northeast, the south, southeast, and so on, what you can do is, and what I've done for years with some of the larger roosts, and <clears throat> what I'll do is, is I use the wind to my advantage. For instance, if you have uh, a roost and you have birds that are coming from the south going into that roost, well, what you want to do is, 
is you want to pick a day when you have a northerly wind where you have the crows against the wind because crows decoy much better when they're uh, coming into the wind. Now, if, uh, on the flip side of that, if you were to take a day and you're shooting the crows coming from the south with the opposite wind, with the wind in the south, for instance, you would kill some of them, yes, but you make it a lot harder on yourself because the later it gets in the afternoon, a lot of those birds do not want to slow down and fish hook because that's what they have to do when the wind is wrong. They have to go past you and make a fish hook and come right back into your decoys. A lot of them just don't want to mess around and do it. Where when you have them against the wind and they're going that way anyway, fighting the wind a little bit, they're much more prone to coming in and giving you a, uh, a look and uh, your numbers uh, just keep on rolling up and up and up and up. And uh, I'm here to tell you, um, if you get in the right spot, if you got uh, crows coming through at spaced intervals, where you're getting shooting, uh, say, uh, uh, just enough to load the gun, you wait maybe 10, 15 seconds, and then you got more targets of opportunity in front of you, you can pile a lot of crows up in a short time. I mean, many, many times myself and my crow hunting mentor, this is going back uh, 35 years ago or better, um, in a matter of about two and a half or three hours uh, on a decent flyway, uh, two guys can uh, roll three or four hundred birds without too much of a problem, providing both of them can shoot, that is. So, I mean, how, one question, Bob, how long when you actually find the roost, how long will a roost stay there for until you shoot out all the birds or do they generally move on with the food source? Well, here in the United States, when, uh, when you find a roost like that, most of the time, provided that roost is left alone, those birds will stay. Uh, I have seen birds, if they really like a roosting area uh, and the feed starts to dissipate, uh, you know, say within five, six miles, 10 miles, 12 miles, even 15 miles from the roost, those crows will just keep going out further and further to feed and come back. Now, I have seen times uh, in other states that I hunt where uh, I call it a split roost, where what will happen is you'll get a certain number of the crows from the original roost that will not roost there because they happen to be smarter than the ones that didn't leave it, where, say, if they're flying out 30 miles now to go feed, where they only got to fly out 10 miles instead of 30 miles, where the other crows are flying the full 30 miles one way and 30 miles thirty miles back each day. So that's why I say sometimes the roosts will split. But if they really like the roosting cover where it's in a nice secluded area where nobody's bothering them, uh, they'll fly a long way. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, when I used to hunt crows up in Holdridge, Nebraska, they had a roost up there. Uh, it wasn't gigantic, but it was a decent-sized roost, though. They had a little over 100,000 birds that would occupy that roost up there east of Holdridge around the town of Funk, Nebraska. Those crows, uh, the ones that would go off to the west and northwest, they'd go out 30 miles to feed, 28 to 30. And uh, the other crows, uh, they had another flyway that would leave the roost and go straight north, which was 19 miles from the roost. So like I say, just the feed that the crows find, um, uh, if it's feed that they like, they'll travel a long way to get it. And here's something uh, that, uh, yeah, as far as the way that they communicate with each other at night when they're back on the roost, I often kid people about this. You know, say, for instance, you got two crows sitting on a limb, and you got one crow that's real fat, 
and the other crow is almost starving to death. And he's talking to his buddy going, where in the heck are you going to feed? So the next morning, the skinny crow follows the fat one, you know what I mean, to see where the heck the feed is. But, I mean, that's only speculation on my part. I don't know if they really do that or not. But uh, as far as looking at it in a, in a humorous way, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if, that, uh, if that does go on. Ah, uh, no, you know, <laughs> that's the uh, Bob Aronsol's, uh uh idea of what happens with the fat crows and the skinny crows, huh? <laughs> sure, absolutely, you know. Right. All right, Bob, what's the um, uh, main staple of, say, the crows' food source? Is it, you know, nuts, berries? Do they, do they feed on anything they can find? Or what, what's their general uh, diet consist of? Well, uh, as far as a crow's diet, um, the, uh, uh, the main things that uh, the crows like... Number one on a crow's diet uh, in the United States, I don't know about Australia, but uh, in the United States, uh, peanuts would be number one, corn would be number two, uh, milo and soybeans together would be number three, and then would come, you know, your melons. Um, and and then you'd have your pecans and, and uh, your various types of nuts like that. And um, that's what they like. Now, crows are opportunists. There's a lot of things that uh, crows will eat when the feed gets tight. Now, a lot of times you will see them uh, feeding on some of the most rotten garbage you ever saw in your life that just stinks to high heaven. Crow doesn't have any sense of smell. He can't smell what he's eating. When a crow goes out and he's foraging around and he's looking for food, he's mainly relying on the visual. He can't scent it, say like a bird dog can or you know maybe like a bear can sniffing around for honey or whatever have you. Um, but uh, uh, crows re you know, rely on the visual for that. Yeah, so with crows, uh, Bob, do they generally, you know, travel in large groups or are they sort of, you know, a, a drift, a vagabond type animal that sort of generally keeps to themselves? It, uh, it depends on the time of year. Um, in the, during the summer months, uh, Jason, uh, they're spread out and fragmented all over the country into, uh, into certain nesting groups. Uh, and then as the... Uh, fall approaches, that's when you have all these family groups starting to come together. And that's where you start seeing crows in large numbers. In the fall, for instance, you'll see uh, oh, you know, uh, groups of uh, anywhere from several hundred to uh, thousands upon thousands of them at a time going into certain roosts in the fall. So getting back to your question, during the spring and summer months where they're fragmented and they're nesting and when the, when the young are off the nest, if a guy is going to go out and run and gun them, it would behoove you to not spend too much time in any one spot. Now, in the fall, that's different. You know, then it, uh, it pays if you've got a good area scoped out uh, where you can stay in one spot and let the birds come to you. And that would be my answer to uh, that question. That's all right. All right. I'm sure the listeners want to know, Bob, what's the, what's your record of how many and the most crows you've shot in one day? Well, there's there's several uh, records, uh, Jason. When uh, when I tell you this, in uh, in December the fifteenth of nineteen eighty two, Boyd Robeson and I. Um, we were in a uh, uh, hunting on a feed field. We had uh, hundreds and hundreds of crows coming in all day long at spaced intervals where they were coming in anywhere from two or three at a time on up to maybe uh, you might have had 18 or 20 birds at, at, uh, you know, at any one time. And we started shooting at about 8.30 in the morning. 
And by 4.45 that afternoon, the two of us, we shot 859 crows in one spot. We never moved a step. We, both of us were using uh, 20-gauge Model 12. They were a, uh, a pump gun that Winchester made uh, you know, during the 1950s and 60s. Well, the, the Model 12 itself actually came out in 1912, but... Uh, um, uh, I I love the old Model 12s. I shot them for years. The 859 that was shot, I remember that day. Boyd shot 467 crows, and I had I shot 392 crows that day. And Boyd said to me, this was in 1982. He said, Bob, he said it'll be a long time before we ever get another one like this. Well, now when we fast forward to the year 2010, 2011 that we're in right now. Last November, I had a shoot that just about equaled that in November. I was alone. I was by myself, and I saw the largest flyaway I've seen in many, many years going out to the uh, the speed fields. And I got set up for them. I started shooting about 7.30 in the morning, and by 5 o'clock that afternoon, I had fired 1,150 12-gauge trap loads and killed 834 crows. And to tell you, when I started shooting, I have a blind bag that I carry 400 rounds of ammunition, carry it into the blind with me. And then I have an extra flat of 250 shells that I stash in the toolies just outside the blind. So if I shoot up the 400 rounds, I can make a short run, grab some more ammo, bring it right back to the blind. Well, a little after 11 o'clock, I had over 500 birds down, shot up all my ammo. I had 650 rounds that I burned up, so I had to go hoofing it for the pickup truck. I go get the truck, drive the truck back, drag out 500 more rounds, put them on top of a five-gallon bucket, run the truck off, run back to the blind. And by 5 o'clock, I shot up those 500 rounds. So I had 1,150 rounds that I fired in one day, but that, that's the best day I ever had. But Two days prior to that, I was out, and uh, I had uh, this was another record of mine, uh, just within a, just within a day of one another, two days of one another, and uh, shot in the morning up until 1:30 in the afternoon. But the greater bulk of the birds that I killed were shot up until about 11, 11:30 in the morning. But um, from about uh, 7:30, quarter to eight in the morning until 1:30 in the afternoon, I rolled 568 crows in a feeding area. And then I packed up, went in, got myself a quick lunch in town, went out in the afternoon, got set up on a flyway, and wound up uh, shooting 143 more in the afternoon, and I wound up with 711 for the day. And uh, I, I fired 895 trap loads uh, out of a 12-gauge that afternoon for the 711 bird shoot that I had. But those are extreme, extreme cases like that. Um, generally, I mean, even 35 years ago, if you went out and, and uh, one guy or two guys together, if you shot several hundred crows, you had a heck of a shoot, let me tell you. Yeah, and I guess... I guess uh... Yeah, like me, I love wing shooting too, and I guess volume, there, yeah, there's nothing like volume shooting, is there, Bob? Absolutely nothing like it. I've, I've made many, many trips down to Argentina, uh, you know, shooting doves and pigeons and waterfowl, uh, you know, ducks and geese. Uh, I like to shoot. I've, I've hunted big game in Africa too, and uh, I remember one time uh, I was hunting in Zambia, and uh we were hunting uh, greater kudu and water buck and all kinds of you know big game animals, and we got around this water hole, and the uh, 
the white hunter wanted to have some ducks for dinner. So I got out the trusty shotgun and I was past shooting some ducks. And he told me, he says he could, he said he could tell by my demeanor and the fun that I was having. He says, I honestly can tell you had more fun shooting the ducks than you did hunting the big game. And he was right, too, because I like to wing shoot more than I like to rifle shoot. All right. Uh, all right. So get, speaking about uh, different types of uh, shotguns, etc., you know, what's the best gauge of shotgun if you're, you know, you're going to be starting to, you know, hunt crows, you know, if you're going to try and get out to distances uh, yeah. Well, uh, hands down, uh, in my opinion, uh, a 12 gauge is very, very hard to beat. And the reason why I say that is, is because you can shoot the sub gauges on crows. And I did for many, many years. Um, but <clears throat> if you're going to travel and if you run out of ammunition, it's just easier to find 12 gauge ammunition than it is 20 gauge ammunition or 28 gauge ammunition. And also, there's an old expression that uh, an old crow hunter from uh, North Carolina told me this, and it always stuck in my head. He said, anything a 20-gauge can do, a 12-gauge can do better. And in fact, that is true, only in the respect that if you get into a hunting situation, what, they, what he means by that is anything a 20-gauge can do, a 12-gauge can do better, is if you're past shooting and the birds aren't working the decoys real well, you can be outgunned where, you know, with a 20-gauge, where a 12-bore, uh, you can gain yourself an extra 15 to 20 yards in competent hands with a 12-gauge. But uh, for many, many years, uh, I, I'll tell you a quick story. <clears throat> A friend of mine, uh, I met him in uh, in a goose pit in Argentina back in 1993. His name is Bob Cook, and uh, he's from Hernando, Mississippi. Very, very nice southern gentleman. And uh, we shared a goose pit for several days together. And uh, since I liked the fella, I said to him, have you ever hunted crows before? And he said, no. So I gave him my telephone number. Nothing happened for about two years. I got a telephone call from him. And he wants to come out and hunt some crows. He said, is your offer still good? And I said, you bet it is. So here he comes. He comes out. And the first year, <clears throat> he just had a 12-gauge with him. He saw that, you know, with me calling him, both using a hand call and using an e-caller and so on, that a lot of the shooting, he really didn't need a 12-gauge. So the following year, he still brought his 12-gauge with him, but he also brought a 28-gauge with him. And just with a little uh, uh, three-quarter ounce load, with that 28 gauge, um, he did a fine job on crows. I mean, he was really knocking the dickens out of them. But here again, most of the shots were 30 yards and under. As a matter of fact, I don't think he, he hardly killed the crow uh, 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 much beyond the 30 yard mark. Most of them were probably, in my estimation, were probably uh, uh, 30 yards max, uh, right in that uh, uh, in that yardage, and. Uh, he had a great time. He, uh, he burned up a lot of 28-gauge shells, and then when he shot all his 28-gauge shells up, he went back to his uh, to his 12-bore and used it. But he had a fine time out here with me, um, and he never forgot it. I remember one, one hunting story I can tell you like this. We were scoping out an area for an afternoon shoot, and um, he said to me, he says, Bob, he says, I think we need to be over there. And I said to him, I think we need to be over here. So he says, well, I don't know. And I said, well, why don't you just humor me? I said, uh, so we get set up where I wanted to get set up. Well, 
in about three hours, the two of us shot 460 crows in one spot, never moved a step. And he shot his 28 gauge on that shoot. And he said to me, he says, Bob, he says, I'll never doubt you again. And I'll tell you another story just real quick about another guy called Bob. And uh, he was a doctor. And he was used to getting his own way all the time. But he was still a nice fellow, though. So he came out on a crow hunt. We're going out in the morning, you know, and I'm looking around trying to see where I want to get set up at. And he says, oh, I think we ought to get set up right here. And I told him, I said, I think we ought to be over there a few hundred yards. And he says, oh, no, no, this is the spot. So I said to him, you're the guest. We'll set up anywhere you want. So we set up where he wanted to, and we didn't kill 50 crows in about four hours. And we saw hundreds of them going through where I wanted to set up. So he says to me, I'll never forget what this guy said to me. He says to me, Bob, meaning me, he says, that's what you get for listening to a damn know-it-all. <laughs> uh, you know, to me, just little things like that just stick in your mind us all when you're talking about hunting stories, Jason. Oh, I know. There's always plenty of hunting stories, Bob. So I think you basically just answered my next question, which was, you know, is it possible to use the smaller gauges such as 20 and 28? Um, what would what would be the smallest gauge you would use on uh, crows? Would it be the, the 20 or the 28 or even the 410 shotgun? You can, I tell you what, I've shot crows. If, you know, now you're not going to kill uh, 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 big numbers of crows with a 410 if you're dealing with crows that have been shot before. Now, if you're dealing with crows that have never been shot where they really come in good, um, even with a 410, if you can shoot, you can do real, real well. Uh, a very good friend of mine, also from Maryland, his name is Jerry Byroad. I hunted crows with Jerry for only five years. And uh, Jerry passed away from cancer uh, last September. But he was a very, very fine gentleman and a very, very fine wing shot and great company in the crow blind. And I'll never, ever forget Jerry. There's hardly a day that goes by that I don't think about him. And in uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, back in the 1980s, they had a very large crow roost there, uh, just as big as the one here at Medora, Kansas. And uh, Jerry, one afternoon on birds returning to the roost with a 410 shotgun. He was using three-inch shells with a three-quarter ounce load of seven and a half. <clears throat> Jerry shot 525 crows with a 410. That record, I've never heard of anyone doing anything like that with a 410. But uh, uh, if, you, if you got things right, uh, he told me during that shoot, he said the last hour he couldn't even hardly load the gun. He was sticking one shell in at a time and shooting, sticking one shell in at a time and shooting, no let up, just as fast as he could load the gun. So uh, at any rate, uh, uh, that was basically it. But you can, I've shot crows with uh, uh, 410s, anything on up to a 12-gauge. Um, for many, many, many years, for the first 16 years that I hunted out here in Kansas when I first moved out here from 1974, 50,000 crows that I shot between 1974, Jason, and 1990 were all shot with a 20 gauge. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah. That, so, and that was, uh, that certainly, obviously, the 20 gauge did the job. But, uh, all right, tell me, so what, uh, in regards to, uh, let's go both. So, what, what, uh, type of shotgun is Bob Bob Aronson shooting and what type of uh, shot size and shotgun shells is he using obviously if you're volume shooting you know, you you want to you know you don't want to be you know competing with recoil all day long so you know what what gun are you using and what type of shot are you using to shoot those crows well um, if you know since if you are going to volume shoot it would behoove you to um, 
shoot a good, reliable, gas-operated semi-automatic. And I have a pair of uh, Beretta Eureka Model 391s, and I like them so well that I bought another Beretta Eureka called a Eureka 2. And um, they, those guns work very, very well. I mean, you can just absolutely punish them, and they keep on working. And the reason how I got on to shooting the uh, Berettas were when I, when I would go to South America, all the high-volume shooters down there, they either were shooting a Benelli or they were shooting a Beretta. Those are the guns that just hold up. And uh, a lot of the outfitters down there that will uh, rent guns to clients that don't want to go through customs with firearms, those are all the weapons that they use too, strictly all Benelli and Beretta, and that's it. So <clears throat> I used to take down a pair of uh, Remington 870s with me down there. With the high-volume shooting, it didn't take me very long to go to a gas gun after that because it's just easier on your shoulder. Now, getting back to uh, to choke, shooting out of a 12-gauge, a 12-gauge trap load either with an ounce of shot or an ounce and an eighth of shot, either in seven and a halfs or eighths, <clears throat> that'll kill crows a heck of a lot further than most guys think. And uh, when I say uh, kill crows a lot further than most guys think, I'm talking... If you're on them and you've got a good hold on them and you've got a gun that patterns well, um, you can kill them out there graveyard dead at 60 to 65 yards. Now, I'm not saying you're going to do it all the time, but the more shooting that you get at yardage like that, the better you're going to become. Last season, out of the almost, I shot almost 5,000 crows last season, and out of that number, there was probably uh, between four and 500 that were killed probably uh, beyond 55 and, and 60 yards in that, uh, in that yardage simply because I get a lot of shooting at that particular yardage, much more so than the average guy. So a guy gets geared for shooting like that and knowing what his gun will do and so on. But um, uh, I think that most people, it's all well and good uh, to be an artist if you can shoot high birds. It looks great. You know, a lot of people just are gasping when they see a bird come out of the air at that yardage. But a lot of times it's far better to improve your crow hunting skills and have the birds work in closer where you can score more on uh, your doubles and triples where you can shoot more of them like that. I mean, that would be my advice to people. And with your chokes, um, it's uh, be a good idea to pattern your shotguns. The reason why is my two Berettas that I shoot, uh, the two older ones, I have modified chokes in both those barrels, but neither one of them shoot like a modified they shoot more like a full choke so that's why it's good to pattern them and see just uh, how they pattern all right so let's say you know somebody wants to you know they've set up their stand let's say they've got some decoys uh will crows just come into decoys or is it best obviously to use like a mouth call or even you know like an electronic call to get the the crows to come into the stand whether you're hunting from a one blind location where you're letting the crows come to you or whether you're running gunning with either technique, the crows will come real well to a call. <clears throat> if they haven't been shot too much by other crow hunters, you can really have a lot of fun with them. Um, what, uh, what I do is with the two different techniques where you're talking run and gunning, where basically you go into the woods, you call them within a minute or two, 
you're done. You go on to the next spot, try to locate some more, call them over, shoot them. Within a few minutes, you're done. Now, the only exception to that when you're running and gunning is uh, during the summertime when the young ones are off the nest, sometimes you'll hit a pocket of where you'll have several family groups in close proximity to one another where instead of, you know, maybe one or two or three crows coming over and it's over with in a minute or two, your shooting might last a lot longer. Where uh, when I used to run and gun in upper New York State, uh, when you would run into that situation, if you were in like a pine thicket um, where uh, they had uh, several family groups that might have nested in there, you might get shooting. It might even last 15 minutes. That's a rarity. But um, getting back to, to to stay on the subject here, when you're running and gunning, um, you can use a hand call. What I do is um, I made some calls up in a sound studio with uh, a pair of mallard tone crow calls uh, quite a number of years ago. They had country western singers there recording their country western music, and there I was with a pair of crow calls in the sound studio. But that's the whole other story. I don't want to get off the subject here. But at any rate, um, what I did was I made uh, a fighting call for Fox Pro. I made a, uh, a recognition call. I made a uh, come here call for them. I made a, um, uh, a recognition call. I made a, a morning call. And all these different calls you use in different situations. For instance, to give you an example, if you're a run, run and gun guy and you're just running into the woods, what you want to use is the hard calls to get the crows to come in fast. And uh, uh, several other uh, uh, distress calls that I made up for Fox Pro will definitely do the job. Um, other calls, if you're in a feeding type setup, I call it soft calling, where I have a recognition call and a come here call where the crows come in much more leisurely, and that's where you're letting your decoys work for you. They hear you know, the call uh, uh, just being used uh, uh, not in a real rapid fighting type cadence. It's more seductive uh, getting them to come in, and then you let the decoys work for you, and they just come floating right into the decoys, where if you have a young shooter that doesn't have much wing shooting experience, that's a very good way to break in a young lad, uh, get them on some crows uh, where they don't present that difficult a target until he can build his confidence. The older he gets, the more birds he gets under his belt and so on. It's very easy taking a young boy out there and he can get discouraged because um, uh, no one shot is exactly the same. And it's a conditioned reflex over the years, building up that muscle memory so you know, you know when to do it. And uh, like I said, that's something that you just don't learn on an odd afternoon. But um, uh, my calls also work very well when you're out scouting around in the fall and the winter months when the feed starts to go away a little bit, when you can find a place where they are feeding and you're hunting out of a blind or maybe what they, they might call a blind to hide possibly in Australia, but it, it, it amounts to the same thing. And um, um, the calls that I use on them uh, for, for many, many years, um, uh, the fighting call alone I've shot tens of thousands of crows. Um, Fox Pro, for instance, um, when you order an electronic game call from them, they, they'll be able to advise you if you tell them what you're hunting and everything, and they can put in uh, coyote calls or fox calls or crow calls or, or whatever you want. They're a very, very good company to, to do business with. Yeah, so all right. So let's say we want to get some uh, decoys, Bob. Uh, how many you know, should we be putting out? Let's say we haven't shot any crows for the day. 
we're just setting up. We can see crows in the area. How many, what's the minimum we'd be able to get started before we start putting crows on the ground? Well, here again, it depends on, on the technique that you're using. If you're going to be running and gunning crows where, the, where you have a lot of foliage on the trees, Jason, you really don't need decoys. Walk into the woods, pick yourself out a spot where you're covered 360 degrees, but you have an open enough shooting hole so when the crows clear the trees, <clears throat> they can't see you until they clear the trees. That's why you really don't need decoys because they're just coming to the sound. Now, in the fall and during the winter months when you do not have the foliage on the trees and there's less cover to hide in, that's where you do use decoys because you use the decoys to uh, basically distract them when they come in. And for those last final moments when they're clearing the trees, they're looking at the decoys and not looking down your throat seeing you. And that's, that's why you use the decoys. Uh, getting to the number of decoys that you use, what I use, uh, uh, I carry uh, one sack of uh, 10 crow decoys with me that I use in a tree set. Uh, sometimes uh, I'll even use maybe a half a dozen. just depends on the size of the tree, basically, that I'm putting the decoys in. If it's a smaller tree, then I use less decoys. And uh, that's basically about it. Um, uh, you can get some uh, great shooting. You don't need a whole bunch of crow decoys. Uh, uh, many, many years ago, uh, I used to carry so many crow decoys, I had gunny sacks full of them. Took up the whole back of the pickup truck, but after hunting them for years and years and years and years, over the years, I finally discovered that you just don't need that many decoys. That's all right. And I've actually heard, too, you might be able to correct me on this, I heard an owl decoy can also help you set up. Is this true? Um, here again, it depends on the region of the country where, uh, where I used to hunt in Oklahoma, uh, around Fort Cobb back in the 1970s, a lot of guys used, uh, owl decoys down there because they had a lot of owls and the crows used to respond real well to an owl decoy. Uh, a lot of guys used stuffed horned owl decoys down there. But here is another thing again. I had a stuffed owl that I used uh, for many, many years. Put them up on a pole, and, and I got shooting with them. There's no question about it. But after doing it and through trial and error, I found out that I could kill just as many crows with just the decoys in the tree without the owl decoy. Now, if you want to use an owl and don't use any crow decoys, you can do that too. What I used to do is I would take the owl decoy and I would put them into the dense cover. And from the ground level, when you're looking at them, you're saying to yourself, oh, man, the crows can't even see that darn owl. And the reason why I would do that is because later in the year when crows get shot at, you can stick the owl if you choose to right out in the open, set them on a fence post. Crows will come in, dive bombing them and stuff like that. But the later in the season it gets, the cagier the crows get, and that's where you got to get back. You get you got to get more back into the timber where they can't see what's going on until they get right in there on top of things. And uh, if you're sitting there waiting for them and you're on the ball and not going to sleep, their goose is cooked when they come through the trees like that. And that, that that's uh, that's a fun way to hunt them like that. Yeah. So I mean, in 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 saying that, uh, Bob is. Would you say camouflage is uh, important when hunting crows? And um, does move? What's the biggest thing? Does movement normally give you away, or what, what's the biggest thing that'll give you away? 
Well, camouflage is important, yes, but you hit the nail right on the head there when you were talking about movement. That is the chief number one thing that'll spook them, where they see movement, where they pick up on it. That is why when you hunt crows, you want to make sure that you get into some cover where you have good cover in front of you and try to have the wind at your back a little bit so the birds will approach into the wind where when you have cover in front of you to break up your human form or your human outline, that way they can't pick you out as easily. Another trick to do is to try to stay in the shadows because when you're hunting in the shadows, you can get away with having some movement where the crows can't pick you up if you're in the shadows. Now, if you've got the sun beating down on you, you turn your face up and you got your your face shining like a mirror there like that, they can pick you out real easily. Another thing to watch also is when you've got the sun out is what a lot of guys do is they'll say, well, why are the birds fading off? I'm hidden. I'm in full camouflage here, and the damn crows keep fading off. And what a lot of guys forget is, is they might even have a face mask on. They might have camouflage paint on their face, but they're sitting there and they got the muzzle of their shotgun sticking up above the, uh, the blind area. And if there's any sun out and they are not hunting from the shadows, the sun is reflecting off their barrel like a darn mirror. So the crows don't even see the crow shooters, but they see that reflection. And if they've been shot before, they're going to bugger off and they're not going to come anywhere near you. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. They, as you said, what are they, the, the fourth smartest bird in North America? So That's, that's, that's exactly right. You so, betcha. So, uh, I mean, for years, uh, uh, because it's movement is what, is what they pick up on. And that is why uh, you want to deploy your decoys when you, you do use decoys to have the crows when they're coming in, not looking at the blind or you. To give you an example, say here again, you got birds coming from the south, you got a north wind, okay? So <clears throat> instead of taking the decoys and putting them directly in back of the blind, you might set them off to the side a little bit, but still in back of the blind where they're not directly lined up with your, uh, you know, uh, with your blind so they can't pick up on any movement. And another uh, uh, key feature to do too is when you're hunting from a blind, something to remember is when you're building a blind, make sure that you build the blind walls dense enough, especially on the back side. If you got the sun at your back, you say, you know, if, say for instance, you got a south wind in the winter time and the sun is coming up in the southeast, make sure that the backside of that blind is real dense cover. Uh, whatever you get to fill in there and fill in the gaps so you don't get what they call a daylighted or backlighted because they can see your silhouette. They can pick up on that from a long ways off. So if you, uh, if you have a lot of dense cover on the backside, you are in effect staying in the shadows like that. And that helps a lot. That's for sure. Um, I myself, I don't use a camouflage mask. I never have. I wear a camouflage jacket and a camouflage hat. But I stay in the blind, and I'm always working in the shadows all the time. And um, uh, by the time the crows come in, you just kind of come up, you ease up. You don't come out of there like a jack-in-the-box. You just ease up nice and easy. Crows don't even see it till it's too late. Curtain time for them. Yeah, exactly. So I'm saying that when, let's say you've put a few crows on the ground, um, do you go out and pick up the dead ones or does it, you know, does that affect actual more crows coming into the stand, seeing the dead ones on the ground? 
Well, the uh, the only time that I go out and pick up the dead crows is up. Uh, I shoot a bunch of crows, and a bunch of them land way down. With, and what happens is, if you get a bunch of birds that are dropping, <clears throat> you know, say 40, 50 yards downwind of you or more, birds that are coming into the wind that start decoying into the dead birds too far downwind from you, when that starts to happen, <clears throat> then I'll get out of the blind as soon as I get a low, and I'll pick up all those birds that have dropped, you know, 40 and 50 yards or more downwind. I'll pick them all up. And then I drag them up closer to my blind, and I just throw them out on the ground closer to the blind where they're all spaced out, where it looks like a whole bunch of them are feeding there on the ground. And that way, when the birds make their approach and come in, they come in a lot closer and give you a lot closer shooting. Now, less experienced uh, fellas will tell you, oh, you have to get out there because they're such a smart bird that they know all the crows are dead on the ground. Well, in fact, the crows are very, very smart. When they see all those dead crows on the ground, they're smart enough to know that those crows are dead. But it's because of their gangsterish spirit that all crows have. They're, once they feed, they're always spoiling for a fight, looking for something to do. When they're flying around and they hear you calling them with a good fighting call or a good distress call, they clearly see all the crows on the ground are dead long before they get there. But they come in anyway because of A, curiosity, B, because of their temper. They've got to come in and investigate and see what's going on. And uh, that's where a good morning call helps out, too, when you get a bunch of uh, dead ones on the ground. Because uh, some people, there's uh, two calls. They're synonymous with one another. Um, The sorrow call and the morning call are the same call. A lot of the old timers, when I first started hunting crows many years ago, called it a sorrow call. But it's, I mean, a a sorrow call and a morning call are the same call. And uh, basically, you'll hear a crow do it because of their intelligence, they're mourning the dead crows on the ground. Now, when I say mourning, I don't mean uh, M-O-R-N-I-N-G, like you get up in the morning. I mean mourning like boo-hoo, like they're crying, you know? I mean, they're not really crying, but they're just mourning the dead ones. And when you use a mourning call on them, when they're using the mourning call, I've got a segment in uh, The Art of Crow Hunting, one of my DVDs that I made back in 2001 on crow hunting, for the cameraman, I was using that morning call, and the crow almost flew inside the blind. It was some great film footage. Um, the uh, the other production, uh, crow shooting, uh, as a matter of fact, I sent you a copy. You're, you're going to get it in six to nine days. Uh, when you see that, that's got some fabulous crow hunts on there. You, you'll really enjoy that, Jason. No, I, I do appreciate that. I haven't actually seen any crow busting or crow shooting DVDs, so you know, always muchly appreciated. Um, so, what would you say uh, is the most successful type of hunting? Um, do you normally have more success from you know setting up a blind, you know, staying in one spot, or do you have much more success running and gunning, or which one do you enjoy more? Well, uh, I enjoy uh, staying in one spot and letting the crows come to me, but. When you say which is the most successful, that depends on the region of the country that you're in. In certain regions of the country where the crows are all spread out all over the place, it doesn't pay to sit in one spot and wait for the crows to come to you because there just aren't enough of them. So uh, the run and gun method will net you more crows than just being in one spot all day long in that type of scenario. Now, in another type of scenario where you have a lot of birds, 
in the county or in the province that you're hunting in, and you get out and you see and study their habits and see what they're doing, just depends on the on the area that you're hunting the crows in, uh, which, uh, which method will yield you the most crows. Let's say, what's the best way? You know, you've actually gone in to set up a stand. Now, let's say there's crows in the area. How, do you, how far do you normally park the truck away so you don't uh, spook them all when setting up your uh, uh, blind, especially if you're within, say, a flight lane? Okay, well, I'll tell you. Uh, out here in uh, the central part of the United States, where they do a lot of farming, a lot of farming, a lot of ranching and everything, and I know they have a lot of ranching in, uh, in Australia, too, um, the crows get used to seeing your vehicles a lot. Now, Dick Kilbane, my number one mate, and uh, Dick likes taking the truck and parking it in the next county almost, you know, so far away. And I take the darn truck, I just drive the thing off 100 yards, 125 yards, and let it go at that. And uh, over the years, he's finally seen that you just don't have to park the truck so far away. As a matter of fact, I'll give you a, a good example of that. Now, if the crows are shot a lot, maybe then it would make a difference. But if they're not shot a lot, they're really not scared of the vehicles. I'll give you a good example. There was a pecan orchard quite a number of years ago. Uh, the orchard owner drove out there with his pickup truck. And he brought lunch out to me because I was shooting his crows. He went to town, got a couple of hamburgers and so on, drove them out there. He pulled his truck right in the back of my crow blind. And at that particular time, I had a couple of hundred dead crows on the ground already. So uh, his engine's running, and I asked him if he wouldn't mind turning the engine off, so he did. I shot about 30 or 40 crows with his truck parked right in back of the blind. I could have reached out and touched the guy. He was so close there like that. And uh, at any rate, um, uh, I, and then that same orchard and the same orchard owner, Dick Kilbane and I, were hunting out of that orchard. Same thing happened. Dick and I are shooting crows. Here he comes through the orchard again. <clears throat> and I said to Dick, I said, I'll bet he got us lunch. Sure enough, he had hamburgers in there and French fries. And Dick said, I never had anybody do that for me before. And I said, this is really a nice guy. I thought I liked that. And uh, afterwards, when we got done shooting, we went back to his house and drank coffee with him and so on and so forth. But very, very nice guy. Um, I never really found that the vehicles uh, uh, spook him at all. No, that's fine. Uh, all right, uh, Bob, just uh, tell us uh, maybe one of one of your most memorable hunting stories. Say, you know, maybe one that sticks in your mind to this day over, say, the many many years that you've actually been crow hunting. Well, you know, one of the funniest ones uh, was when I was a little boy, and your listeners were are going to have to go back to when they were very very young five six years old if they can remember back that far and the reason why i can remember how old i was is because when i was six and a half years old my father started me out shooting woodchucks groundhogs with a 22 rimfire so i know that this was prior to that time i'm guessing i was probably five years old at the time and it was in the fall of the year, and my dad and his cousin were trying to put the sneak on some ducks. They were sneaking up on a pothole. So they're going through the timber with me. I'm five years old. And tells me, you stay here and don't move. We'll be back. Okay? Well, you know how things, how imagination can run wild with a little five-year-old kid. 
So my cousin and my dad are sneaking up on these ducks. And I am thinking about the story, Hansel and Gretel. Are you familiar with that story? Uh, Yeah, I am. Yep, yep. You are. Okay. Well, uh, uh, Hansel's mother wanted uh, the father to take him out in the woods and lose the son. And Hansel found his way home by dropping breadcrumbs, and he followed the breadcrumbs home. So I'm sitting by the cypress tree, five years old. My dad goes out of sight with my cousin, and after about 60 seconds, I'm starting to panic at five years old, going, oh, man, he took me out here to lose me, and I have no damn breadcrumbs. What am I going to do? So I go try to catch up with them. The duck heard me crashing through the timber, and off they went about 100 yards before my dad ever got close to him. He never got a shot off. So after that, my dad never took me duck hunting again until I was a couple of years older. <laughs> and that, yet that to me was funny anyway. And uh, there was another story. This is the story of two fools in the crow blind meaning Dick and I. Wait till you hear this story. I'm telling you, the two of us felt like a pair of fools at the end when this happened. I was testing out the Snow Crow Pro unit eight years ago before it hit the market. I was testing it out for Fox Pro. And I thought I was having a problem with one of the speakers. So I unplugged it from the machine to see if the other speaker was playing. Well, sure enough, the other speaker was playing. So now I have both speakers unplugged from the unit. And the crow call is still playing. And I'm looking at it. I'm dumbfounded. And I'm going, this is impossible. There is no possible way this thing can still keep playing when it's disconnected from the unit. So my friend Dick, he's looking at this. And he's shaking his head back and forth, just saying, man, this is like a bad dream. He said, that's absolutely impossible. And then he starts laughing. And he realizes what has happened was, since I was having some problems with the unit, He had his own crow calling rig, and he had his playing, only he forgot. He thought he turned it off, but he didn't, and his was playing the same tune as mine was, and here the two of us are looking at the two plugs disconnected from my unit, thinking that the damn thing is still playing. I mean, it was just, you would have had to have been there. I have always had the ability to be able to laugh at myself with some of the things that I do. And I think that that's a good, healthy attitude, too, because if a guy takes himself uh, too seriously, uh, he's going to be walking around grumpy all day long. Uh, exactly right, Bob. So um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be able to use this podcast if they actually want to go out you know, and start hunting crows. Um, do you have anything you want to plug in regards to you know, maybe your website, any websites or any of your uh, DVDs, and where can people go to uh, purchase uh, those products? Well, uh, first and foremost, if they go to www.crowbusters, C-R-O-W, B-U-S-T-E-R-S dot com. They, they'll get on the Crowbuster website, and if they look under educational material, they'll see my uh, crow hunting DVDs. They'll also see I have an instructional uh, crow calling uh, CD on how to blow the different types of calls using a handheld call. As a matter of fact, I sent you one of those CDs too in your package to you that you can uh, learn to uh, do some of those crow calls yourself. Fantastic. Um, uh, another outfit that's very good too, two of them, is um, F&T Fur Harbor's Trading Post. Uh, that's on the internet. Uh, they carry my CDs and um, they also carry uh, the calls that you can implement into 
an electronic game caller. One of them is a CD, and it has both MP3 format on it, and then there's another outfit called All Predator Calls. They are on the Internet. They ship anywhere in the world. They have all my crow stuff, too. All you got to do is type in Bob Aronson, A-R-O-N, S-O-H-N, and my name will come up with all the products that they uh, that they sell of mine. Box Pro, I've been uh, uh, working with them for the last eight years now, and um, I'll tell you just one quick uh, funny story in closing here. When you asked me uh, about crow calls and so on, briefly we touched on it earlier. Now your your uh, viewing audience might find this humorous. I'm in this sound studio, and I'm making up these crow calls for Fox Pro. And uh, at any rate, this uh, gal comes up to me, and um, she says, uh, how's it going? And I said, going pretty well. She says, uh, so I said, would you like to listen to my recording? Well, she didn't know that I was blowing crow calls, okay? So I look at the, uh, uh, the, uh, the technician there that was, uh, that was doing the audio for me. I look at him and wink, and I said, uh, why don't you... Uh, take her into the sound room there and turn on some of my songs there that I was uh, recording earlier. So he says, okay. (laughs) She goes in there and she hears all these blood curdling crow calls and stuff. Well, when she came out of the sound studio, that's the last I ever saw that gal. I can't imagine why. (laughs) (laughs) She might've been expecting to hear some good country music from uh, the middle of the state. That's exactly right. Well, see, a lot of them were aspiring country western singers is what they were doing. And then, unfortunately, they met uh, crow hunting extraordinaire Bob Aronson. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. (laughs) But it was really funny. I got a big kick out of that. No, no, that's right. What about, say, if people wanted to ask you questions, uh, Bob, how could they have... Have you got an email? People can uh, send you email or any questions if they wanted to email you? My email address is, it's all one word, it's the letter G as in game, okay, G and then A-R-O-N-S-O-H-N at Cox, C-O-X dot net. That's fantastic. I'm really glad I was able to uh, get you on the show, Bob. You're absolutely a wealth of knowledge. Um, You've shot many, many thousands of crows over the years. And I'm sure when people listen to this, you know, even in Australia, I don't think crow hunting and uh, is as popular, definitely not as popular as over in America. But I know a lot of the laws here, you actually can hunt crows, especially in New South Wales, the state that I live in, outside the Sydney Basin. And there's no limit and there's no season on that. So uh, people should go look at their local uh, laws, uh, get out there. If they can hunt crows, they can decoy them just like ducks, as Bob's just explained on the show. So, Bob, thanks for coming on the show. One other thing in closing is if you're shooting the crows, and you just were alluding to it a minute ago where there's no uh, bag limits on them, is you don't have to stop like you do with waterfowl uh, with a limit. Uh, You don't have the constraints of a bag limit. That's one reason why I've been hunting crows for so many years, because you don't have the constraints of a bag limit. You get into a good spot and you do your homework, uh, the sky is the limit. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely, Bob. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I'm sure people are going to be able to use this. And hopefully um, one day, you know, many in many years to come, I might be able to be hunting crows in uh, America sometime and sitting in a blind with uh, the great Bob Aronson, crow hunting extraordinaire. Work something out like that, but you'd have to come out here a little bit earlier than uh, when you're uh, than when you normally want to get here, like in December, because uh, my friend Dick 
that uh, that I hunt with, I hunt with him exclusively from December, you know, until the end of February. But yeah, anything prior to that, yeah, we could work something out. But uh, at any rate, uh, it's a pleasure being on your show, and I wish you uh, uh, all the best with it. And uh, you're a fine young fella. Thanks, Bob. Thanks again, and uh, hopefully we talk again soon. That sounds mighty good. You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Brought to you by AussieUsedGuns.com.au The premier classifieds of new and used firearm sales. Thanks for listening. See you next time.